the Silhouettes, a fashion history podcast all about the importance of the clothes we wear. Um, We have another short history episode for you today, delving into the history of ties. Now, I know this might seem like quite a niche topic, but actually there's a really interesting story to the life of the tie. They've been a staple of sort of stereotypical men's fashion for centuries and therefore are a really interesting little peek into the story of fashion expectations of men, gender politics in fashion and the hierarchy of men's fashion in general. When I say ties, I mean anything that wraps or ties around the neck, particularly the long tie we know of but also bow ties, cravats and other similar neckwear. There is also a huge culture around neck adornment around the world spanning from the traditional western men's tie all the way to Japan and silk neckerchiefs and things like that. As Avril Hart says in her book Ties, The long tie is such an accepted piece of men's dress that few stop to consider its origins. It has in fact taken over 300 years to reach its present form, all while tracing its development. This rather small item of dress has become an important guide to a man's identity. And that sums up this entire episode nicely, really. We know of a huge array of different tie styles that were popular throughout history, including the cravat, the jabot, the skinny tie, the kipper tie, the bib cravat and the macaroni cravat. But all of these eventually became what is known today as just the tie. And that is still its most popular incarnation. Now, much like many of the micro items in these episodes, tracing the origin of the tie chronologically is quite tricky. Many items have not survived, likely due to ties often being made of delicate materials such as silk and much evidence, as Hart also explains in her book, can be found visually in terms of depictions such as portraits and engravings and advertisements. These really show us what was worn and what ties would look like, but as we know, we must always take these with a pinch of salt. Written sources also exist, but much like visual sources, only tell us so much. So I will do my best in this episode to give as much info as possible, but the history is a little murky. One example of this is in the 17th century, dictionaries were popularly published and give some description of different types of ties and neckwear. The Dictionnaire Universal from 1690, for example, is an illustrated version of a French dictionary, and this gives some insight into the popularity of neckwear in France at this time. Another way in which this information can be found is in order catalogues, shop inventories, and so on, particularly for England. As Hart explains, these can show detail on prices and indicate how often and what quality of neckwear was bought and worn. Personal dictionaries are also invaluable. The Diary of Samuel peeps being one we all know well I'm sure and these offer personal opinions and reactions to fashion staples such as tie and neckwear and they're really fascinating pieces of history. These are great because they give us things like personal taste and real opinions. And I find for me, they really connect me to people that are long gone. You know, everyone has different tastes and different ideas on fashion staples even 300 years ago. So these are some really invaluable sources. But despite info being quite limited on this topic, I thought it was interesting to know. And I will try and give you as chronological a history as I can and as my research has given me. But just know it was quite tricky. So starting from the beginning, as I found out, most historians and sources that I found agree that the origin of neckwear was in the 17th century, around 1618, during the Thirty Years' War. The necktie, as according to Valerie Cummings in her Dictionary of Fashion History, came into use around 1830. In the Thirty Years' War, Croatian mercenaries were required to wear a piece of cloth that tied around their neck as their uniform, and these were used to simply tie up the top of their jacket and probably protect their neck as well. And this was essentially the birth of neckwear. 
As we found in earlier episodes, often fashion accessories started off with practical military origins. However, these small ties around the neck opened the eye of some Parisians, and so the cravat was also born from this. The cravat is a neckcloth of differing material that wraps around the neck or ties around in specific styles. It was then in 1646 that seven-year-old boy King Louis started copying the style of these military-inspired neckties after the army visited Paris on a victory tour, and he began wearing cravats, popularising them around France, for nobility particularly. Men specifically then started wearing cravats or jabots around France, and eventually the rest of Europe took note. The cravat then became a staple of men's attire in the West and can be seen detailed, drawn and noted in a huge array of illustrations, diaries, dictionaries and portraits of this era, all the sources that I mentioned right at the beginning of this episode. So basically the staple part of male attire is all down to a seven-year-old boy thinking it was cool, go figure. <laughs> Again though, as we see in a lot of these episodes, the royals establish and popularise fashion trends and fashion staples. This seems so commonplace, particularly in Europe and the West in these early periods, and it shows us just how much sway the royals really had at these time periods. Not only did they start fashion crazes, but made items such as cravats become almost necessitated. It's this combination of fashion versus expectation, and these two lines seem to cross and merge so frequently and that's really interesting to me but they all seem to have some origin within military dress and within the royal sway now there is obviously evidence to suggest that armies in asia would wear some form of neckwear as protection long before these croatian mercenaries but the information was sparse and limited and i don't really want to make any mistakes here so i won't go into it into too much detail it was so hard to find this information but there is evidence of sculptures and statues that demonstrate this so if you're interested there are some cool images out there that could be found but yeah the information was very limited and would take a lot more detailed research than I have the time or abilities to do so with this podcast <laughs> but essentially the birth of the sort of western known necktie was with these Croatian mercenaries in the 17th century. So eventually across Europe, cravats and other fabric ties around the neck became a way for men to frame their faces and draw attention to their fine visages. For men of high standing, neckwear became a really important part of their daily uniform, basically the way that they dressed, much like the corset for women. What started out as a fad or a fashion statement or a trend became something that was expected if you were to be seen as both important, attractive and basically acceptably masculine at this time period. Samuel Pepys, who I mentioned earlier, has information in his diary about tie wearing. Uh, Pepys is a famous writer of a very long intensive diary from the 17th century and much of our information from that time period from England comes from his writings. His diary is a really really important piece of historical evidence. <laughs> so uh, it, I've mentioned it in this for that reason. But basically because of his position in the admiralty at the time, he moved in some very aristocratic circles as heart detail in her book and he was required professionally and socially to maintain a handsome and formal appearance however as he says in 1663 one morning he was unhappy because this morning dressing myself and wanting a band i found all my bands that were newly made clean so ill smooth and flung all on the ground and was angry with jane <laughs> In this instance, a band is any type of neckwear, perhaps a doublet collar or a cravat or an attached shirt collar, basically an early form of neckwear. Clearly, though, the expectation was 
here that any sort of tie or neckwear was to be kept neat and well maintained and well looked after and he was angry because basically he needed to probably go do something important that day and his neckwear was uh, not up to scratch. As Richard says in a book Dress Codes, through our attire we announce who we are, what we care about and where we belong. Very interesting. So this kind of um, sums it up and sums up why he was particularly upset about his neckwear being crumpled because clearly this is a part of the masculine uniform of the time period that denoted who you were, what you cared about and what position you had in society. Clearly neckwear and bands at this time had a lot of sway and a lot of importance. Now, cravats remained the most popular style um, for men for many years. In 1688, a man called Randall Holmes explains in his book Academy of Armory and Blazon, cravats are the most important part of um, menswear and it's something that he brings up often in this work. But moving on from the 17th century and throughout the 17th century, actually, the cravat developed into a huge amount of different forms of neckwear. The cravat was still widely popular, as the previous section suggests, but more elaborate designs started to merge alongside the classic cravat style. So not quite the tie that we know in terms of a long piece of printed fabric, but anything that ties around the neck formally. There was a fashionable type of band in the 1640s that emerged. This fell just short of the shoulders lying flat on the chest in two broad bibs with squared ends and trimmed with a lace edging. There is also a miniature of a young man owned by the V&A by one Samuel Cooper from 1653 that shows a large plain white neckband with long tasseled strings neckwear gradually got more and more experimental it seems also around this time period in venetian fashion the necktie in all forms particularly the white lace cravat style was a huge staple for men's fashion in italy particularly in venice there are multiple images of Venetian nobles wearing neckties and cravats. There are very few without. Venice was an important city during this year, or this time period, and the necessity of the necktie or cravat in this era for noblemen is very interesting and shows how important it was in terms of status and importance in Western society. These styles stayed popular throughout the 1700s and the cravat was a huge part of all areas of dress. In 1715, the cravat developed into something known as a stock. The stock could be made of a leather and was a collar often worn by men of military importance to protect the neck in war. Generals in Civil War photos and illustrations can be seen wearing these stocks from America, but stocks were also made of sort of a multitude of different materials and were a more modern take on the cravat. But generally throughout the 1700s, the cravat made of silk or lace or anything soft like materials, for example, stayed very popular. And the change really happened in the early 1800s, so the 19th century. So moving on to the beginning of the 1800s, um, men at this time followed very strict dress codes and bow ties became a huge part of this in the Edwardian era later on. As mentioned by Natasha Slee in Planet Fashion, in the early 1800s the cravat and the stock were still a huge part of men's dress. We see this with typical Regency fashion. There were also many publications that told men how to tie a proper cravat and the proper way to do things became important. So in 1818 we saw the publication of Necklothania, <laughs> a manual that showed a man how to style his cravat in 14 different ways to allow for experiment but also within societal necessity. Being able to style a cravat properly, neatly but also in interesting ways became a display of wealth, importance and style, much like hairstyles for women at this time period. This was also the first ever documented use of the word tie as opposed to cravat, jabot or band. And Necklothania, what a name, we love to see it. <laughs> 
So as we saw in the early eras, um, neckties were fashion statements and developed wealth and elegance. But with the development of the Industrial Revolution, many then wanted ties that were easy to wear and most importantly, quite safe because they had become such a staple in men's attire. And a lot of men were getting, you know, men of importance were getting more physical jobs with the Industrial Revolution. This was something that was quite important to them. And they didn't want sort of frilly, lacy things that could, you know, get in the way and be dangerous. The Industrial Revolution really peaked in the early 1800s and ended around 1840, 1820, that kind of time period. So it was sort of directly after that Regency period, which, as we found out before, is much shorter than you (laughs) think, where these fashion items were coming much more practical with, you know, the necessity of a changing world. At this point, I'm really speaking about England and the West, because that is where a lot of the information um, I could find on the development of ties was around I'm sure around the world there was perhaps similar things but I really did find that quite difficult to find and when I was looking up the history of ties and neckties and neckwear it was very western centric that's probably because the tie and the suit and very strict sort of neat dress codes were necessitated in the west and in England and France and America specifically so I think that's just why it was very centered to this part of the world because our dress codes at this time period were so strict and really, really included ties as such a big part of that and bow ties later on, as we'll see. Anyway, as I was saying, a silk ruffled neckerchief was not useful for manual labor, obviously. (laughs) And this is where the tie that we know today was actually designed. The long, easy to tie band of thicker material was able to be tucked underneath clothes to stop any loose material flapping about, just like ties we know today. This design then saw the introduction of the bow tie, which was an offshoot of the long ties. We owe a lot to the 19th century nowadays in terms of um, fashion because that was really the birth of a lot of the things that we still wear now. We also saw the development of different types of neckties including the satin stock which is a ruffled long necktie that sits on the neck like a roll neck and these became the bow tie due to neatness and easy of wear so we see one thing slowly developing into another just because of necessity. Also from the mid 19th century so the mid 1800s men's collars were lowered and this had a real effect on men's neckwear. Cravats became more difficult to style and low narrow collars demanded narrower neckties. When you see the illustrations of men from the 17th century and a little bit earlier, the collar of the shirt is so high and goes almost to the chin basically, but that slowly, slowly lowered and became the collar that we know that sits at the base of the neck. It was from this period on that the term necktie was apparently applied to looser, floppier, bows that were worn and silk was also used more often and this is where um, the ascot started to make an appearance in fact. Now into the late 19th century ties and neckwear had become a staple item of fashion for men and were just you know as commonplace as wearing your socks. (laughs) This came alongside in England particularly the um, generalized sort of societal expectations on correct dress and general etiquette. This is where snobbiness of ready-made ties and ready-made ascots began growing and this really lasted. Sidney Barry in his booklet Clothes and the Man from 1951 gives a warning about the do's and don'ts for well-dressed men. 
He says, avoid wearing a bow tie with a stiff double collar. This indicates the bow is ready made. Now, we'll get into the um, 20th century and the mid-century soon, but I think the fact that this is from the 50s and this snobbiness began in this Victorian era of snobbiness and etiquette is really, really interesting and shows how important the tie was for such a long period of time. But generally in history, and for this period in particular, there is little space for experimenting in men's fashion, really. Typically, as we are seeing here with the Victorian tie. The well-dressed man is an important one in society, it seems, and is something we see even really today. It's very rigid, actually. We associate importance and wealth with a male who is dressed formally and crisply, and this probably started with this really, really early expectation in the West of those like Samuel T. Pepys and sort of really turned into a wildfire by the Victorian era. Now, obviously, that's not true at all. <laughs> you don't have to be uh, crisply dressed in a suit to be an important person, and you don't, certainly don't have to just be a man. It's just still a thing we sort of hold on to in society for a lot of people. And it's really interesting to sort of note where this came from and this idea of suits versus importance really started at this time period and the tie is such a big part of that and there's so much uh, nuance within the tie that I didn't really know about before and it's really quite fascinating. Moving on to the 20s and 30s, and um, within a similar vein, I want to talk about the idea of androgyny in fashion in the 20s and 30s. This is an era that we saw, within wealthy circles at least, a great deal more experimentation between genders and gender identity, and the rigidity was watered down ever so slightly, and it's quite exciting. <laughs> Ties became a part of female-centered androgynous fashions around the world, and not just in the West either. Of course, in America and Europe, we have individuals such as Louise Brooks and Marlena Dietrich who wore typical men's suits and sort of turned this into a more experimental side of fashion and the suit and the tie was no longer just something that men could wear. The gender boundaries were still there, obviously, and I don't want to forget about that. But this was 100 years ago and ideas of gender identity were still developing. So it's really interesting. But these women wore men's suits and allowed ties particularly to become a large part of their experimental fashion. After this, we see in the 40s and 50s, neckerchiefs and cravats become a part of women's general silhouettes. Think of wartime workers in their uniforms. They often had ties as well as langos, for example, who wore knitted jumpers, cords and ties. Also in SWH uniforms, a plain tie was seen as an important part of this distinctive uniform even in the first world war and this may have ignited the previous idea of androgynous fashion developing there's a great book called great war fashion by lucy adlington that talks about this but also think of the typical 50s teenage look a la greece it is usually a large poodle skirt a bardo top and a silk necktie but back to the 20s this was kind of the birth of the tie sort of developing and becoming something a bit more interesting and being able to be experimented within different circles and not within such strict gender boundaries. In China, for example, this was something that was also experimented with in this time period. A woman named Dr. I'm going to probably get this wrong. Shuang Shuin, obstetrician at the Guangzhou Anito Hospital. I hope I got that right. <laughs> Posed for the ladies magazine in 1930 wearing a suit, shirt and a tie and a tailored skirt with her hair in a very sleek bob. This is referenced in changing clothes in China. In China, actresses and singers also often wore men's suits and ties at this time period. And in the 20s and 30s in China, ties were not seen as high formal wear. They were experimental, fashionable looks for individuals who wanted to try different styles. But clearly we are seeing gender identity being experimental 
represented at this time period with around the world, particularly for, you know, people on screen and um, sort of people who were maybe famous. I use that <laughs> term loosely, but for, you know, high society people who have the opportunity to experiment with fashion around the world, they are. And that's fascinating. And, you know, what's interesting. It's really not too dissimilar today. We still see people who experiment with gendered fashion as part of a certain distinct group and formal wear or workwear for cis white men particularly is still very rigid, even 100 years later. And we still associate so many things that we associate then with the suit and with the crisp, well-dressed, typical man even now. The 30s actually is really interesting in terms of this idea of the suit and tie, particularly the tie, because they had a real change at this time period for men particularly. Gender experimenting aside, I'm going to go back to just the kind of really strict idea of man's suit and tie, (laughs) because really that's a huge part of fashion history and that's, you know, just the way it is. But yeah, think of the 1930s New Yorker, for example. The short shirt, the wide tie and the fedoras is a really iconic image. Ties during the 30s were shorter due to the shape of men's trousers being much higher with a thicker waistband and a higher waist shape. This was a very Art Deco inspired style, but waistcoats were also very popular in the 30s, meaning ties did not need to be so long as they would have been mostly covered by the front of a waistcoat. The more you know. (laughs) It wasn't a fashion in terms of taste and style, but one of necessity almost, as we're seeing in the past as well. I mean, more experimental designs of different materials and styles developed later into the 40s and the designed tie became quite a staple. But in the 30s, it's very interesting to see this kind of wide, short tie that's become quite romanticised now as a really cool, interesting piece of men's fashion that isn't just worn by men either. Actually, it was just made that way because it looked better with the other clothes. <laughs> so probably our most iconic image in the West, particularly surrounding the tie, is of the 1950s man, particularly in the USA. But this look also inspired looks around the world in Italy and in France and elsewhere. Think of Sinatra and Bing Crosby and those kind of um, icons. And I think this is where the age of the tie that we know now really became cemented and the design hasn't really changed a great deal since. In the 50s particularly, the expectation for men was to dress very sharp. Again, we keep seeing this coming back. (laughs) But I'll share some cool images of really weird and wonderful ties from this time period, from the 40s as well. Some with frogs and spiderwebs and real fantasy designs and they're super, super cool. This was known as the bold look and was popularised in places such as Esquire magazine. These ties started their life in the 40s where men would paint their own ties in the USA particularly. They aren't just plain silk or neat patterns like we might think but this era was actually very fun for ties. This look was popular until the mid 50s and tie width slowly got slimmer and got the slimmest in the 60s. There was still the expectation for the suit to be really sharp but what's interesting with this is that the tie kind of was a little place of experimentation where you could have something really loud and patterned and um, odd and that was your sort of space for that but your your suit had to be very very neat and crisp obviously as with everything this wasn't the case with literally everybody (laughs) on the planet at this time period but you know on the whole in terms of societal expectation and what was seen as making you important and you know all that kind of stuff obviously in the 50s geometric patterns and shapes became popular and sort of loud wild patterns and designs in the 40s but in the 60s these became block colours or different neater designs in the 60s kind of going with that the vibe of the 60s that we know you know even furniture did for example it was all very neat block colours which I like that but um I think I would have missed the 
<laughs> the loud pans of the 10 years before. But ties were still a huge staple for men's fashion and for women too, but not the sort of shape of the tie that we really know. Like I said, it sort of was cravats or little neck ties or you know, sort of more little soft silk things rather than the long necktie. In the 40s, it was uniform that still had ties and that was a huge, huge part of it, but not so much in terms of day-to-day casual wear. You did have some women's suits in the 40s and 50s that have ties and these are really cool, but they're fewer and far between than outfits without. But in the 70s, ties basically got huge. (laughs) This was known jokingly as a kipper tie and this is that classic ridiculous 70s tie that I've seen images of. Have a look at the kipper tie if you don't know what I mean. You'll have a great day. (laughs) But they're just really wide and really long and they're huge basically. I suppose they go with the flares I don't know I feel like the 70s was just wild time for any (laughs) anyone wearing clothes (laughs) but obviously into the 80s and 90s then they became thin again (laughs) but they also became quite fun again I I didn't mean that to sound so uncool it just came out that way I own a few ties from this time period. I have lots of Disney ties. I have one that's just covered in dogs, one that's covered in Labradors. They're really cute and they're really fun and they're often silk ties and they're not printed on but they're actually stitched in the patterns. But basically this is where the mix of formal fashion and fun ties kind of developed I think. For some reason the long typical masculine silk tie was no longer a part of women's dress and this really seemed to die out a little bit at least after the war. The shape of ties also changed. Some were long and thin and square to the edge, whereas some were shorter and fatter with a pointed end. In the 80s and 90s, it just kind of became a bit of a free-for-all really. And the kind of structure of the tie wasn't quite as rigid and you could sort of do what you want as long as you were dressed well and the tie wasn't too far. I don't know what too far would be, but in terms of an 80s and 90s point of view. I do definitely think ties have become less of a staple now. Think sort of post-80s. But there's still definitely something associated with sharp dressing as I said formal attire and uniforms will always have a tie pretty much so clearly we still in society in the west particularly but all over the world too I think hang on to that association of the tie as making a man's outfit smart and complete weddings for example in court for teachers is still such a staple and all because of the fancy of a seven-year-old boy who just thought something was cool Anyway, to finish, I hope this was an interesting episode. I know what's most fascinating for me was looking at the origins. So many fashion staples have military origins, as I'm finding out with my research for the short history episodes, and that's really interesting. (laughs) I definitely didn't expect the tie to have that origin. I don't know why, I just didn't associate those two things. I don't know what I thought, but yeah, it just wasn't something I associated. I also found it really interesting thinking about gender identity in fashion and gendered expectations, because obviously the story of the tie is a big part of this and includes suit. And these are things that are seen as much more typically masculine or to be worn by men in the stereotypical sense, obviously. And that's something I think I definitely want to explore more. If that's something you think you'd want to hear more about, you know, gendered expectations in society in terms of fashion, um, you know, do let me know on my Instagram. It's at Silhouettes Podcast. Um, I'd love to hear from you. I think it's quite promising at Train of Thought too. So we'll see where that goes. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be back for one more short history episode after this, and that will be the short history of tattoos. So keep your ears open for that, as it's a good episode and quite interesting, as I hope they all are. (laughs) On that note, thanks so much for listening and stay fab, everyone. See you in the next one.